Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that all is not lost in our lives. That even at times when our own sin brings destruction and consequence, that your redemption is greater still. And as we see the fall of Adam and Eve, we also see your plan of redemption. So God, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. For those that know uh, this chapter of scripture, may it just be fresh tonight. Those that are hearing it for the first time, may it speak to our hearts and our lives. May you make us more aware of how Satan would want us to deceive and the damage of sin, but even more so the power of the blood of Jesus that brings redemption. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. and We ask where we need refreshment that you would provide it, where we need correction that you would speak to us. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember a day in your life where everything changed? Maybe it's when you receive Christ as your Savior. You look back and you go, that was a moment in time where God changed me and things have been different in my life uh, since then. Maybe when you met your spouse and you started dating and there was a, a change that took place. For those of you that are parents, when your kids were born. Possibly when you received your job and you got the job that you'd been, been longing for. But there is a moment in time where something significant happened and things changed. Also, there's times of tragedy that hit. Where there's a death of a loved one. A loved one passes away. You get that phone call and, and everything changes. There's the car accident that takes place. Maybe your health has never been the same since that car accident. Well, what we study tonight in Genesis chapter 3 changes everything. It changes everything for Adam and Eve. It changes everything for everyone who would live after Adam and Eve. We're all impacted by Adam's sin. But though all things have changed, not all things are lost. Because as Adam and Eve sin and they fall, we also see God's plan of redemption unfolding, which is so beautiful and powerful that God didn't give up on Adam and Eve, and he doesn't give up on us as well. So verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he answered and said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's happened up until this point is God spoke everything into existence It's good, it's good, it's good, except for one thing, for Adam to dwell alone. So God creates Eve, brings them together in this wonderful, perfect marriage. Adam sees Eve and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And they're joined together in marriage unashamed. And that's where we leave off in chapter two. And then we get into chapter three. And the next thing that we see is Satan's attack. And if you're taking notes, that's the first point this evening is Satan's attack. Satan attacks marriage from the very beginning. We see the first institution of marriage, the first gift of marriage, and here comes Satan to attack. We also note that Satan has already fallen from heaven by this point. He's, he's fallen from the place of being an angel and his rebellion against God and wanting to take God's place So he is thrown out of heaven and is here on earth with opportunity to be able to tempt and attack Adam and Eve. 
he comes and speaks through this serpent. So you've got a snake, who this talking snake that was a beautiful aspect of God's creation prior to Satan getting involved. And this snake is, is cunning, and Satan is cunning. And the first thing that the Satan does is ask the question, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So Satan questions the word of God. Did God really say that you can't eat of every tree that's inside of, of the garden? And in questioning the word of God, Satan's wanting to plant the seed of doubt inside of Eve's heart. In questioning the word of God, Satan is really questioning the character of God. Is God really good? Is God trustworthy? Is God withholding something from you? I mean, did he really say that you can't eat of every tree that's inside of the garden? And this is still how Satan is going to attack in our lives. We need to be aware of it. And it's very subtle. It's very cunning. But he wants us to doubt and question the word of God. Now, there's one thing to question the word of God from the aspect of thinking it through and trying to understand it. And that's not what Satan is doing here. He's really trying to get to that place of, of doubt where we get into our hearts and minds. Did God really create the universe? Is there anything that's true about the gospel is hell really real? Is God really going to send people to hell for, for all of eternity? And we want to be careful that we take those thoughts captive and bring them back to the obedience to the, the word of God. But this is where the attack of Satan always begins, is to question the word of God. Everything good that Adam and Eve are experiencing is due to the word of God. God spoke, and all of these things come to, into existence. But now Satan's wanting them to question the word of God. In verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. This is Eve's revision. She revisited, she edited the word of God. She revised it. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, you see what God had said to Adam, and then Adam passed this on to, to Eve. So look at verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2, and we'll see the instruction that God gave. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. So first, Eve leaves out two things. Were you able to pick up what two things she took out? She took out the word every, and she took out the word surely. Of every tree of the garden, you may eat freely. God emphasized in his command, I'm giving you free reign of every tree except one. But when Eve recites the command of God, she takes out the word every. She subtracts from God's command, but she also takes out the word surely. God emphasizes, look, if you eat of this tree in disobedience, you're going to die. The wages of sin is going to bring death, and she minimizes the command of God. How easy it is with the word of God to take out a little bit of God's word. But then also she added something. What did she add? Don't touch it, right? God never said to not touch it. 
Now, this is different than her saying, well, Adam and I decided that we didn't want to touch the fruit because if we get close, it could bring uh, temptation. She says, God has said. God has said, surely not touch it. She added to the word of God. This is very easy uh, to do as well, and it's well-intending, right? You can almost see their motivation. We just want to stay as far away from trouble as we possibly can, so we're not even going to touch it, but yet they're saying that this was what God had commanded. With the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees during the ministry of Christ, what really got them in trouble is they added to the word of God. They taught the doctrines of men as the doctrines of God. So don't add to the word of God. Don't take away from uh, the word of God. Our safest defense against the attack of the enemy is the word of God as it is written. When Jesus was attacked by Satan, he responded by quoting the word of God. And Satan tried quoting the word of God, but he misused it. And so we want to know the word. We want to stick to the word. Don't add to the word. Don't take away uh, from the word of God. Adding to the commands of God is is legalism. That will lead to to bondage. Taking away from the word of God is liberalism. And that will lead to, to bondage as well. So they're having this dialogue, even Satan. In verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So first Satan questions the word, but then he contradicts the word. He says, look, God said that you're gonna die. Surely you're gonna die if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But no, you're not gonna die. There's no way. And the first thing that Satan questions and contradicts is a divine judgment of God. Isn't that interesting? What is probably the most contested biblical doctrine today, it's the doctrine of divine judgment. It's the doctrine of God sending people to hell over the rejection of, of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people that say, well, I don't want to believe in a God who could send people to hell, right? That doesn't sound like a, a God of, of love to me. And here's Satan from the very beginning is questioning divine judgment, isn't he? Saying, you can go ahead and sin and you're not going to get the consequences. And Satan tempts us the same way today. Oh, is it really forbidden? Is it really bad? Is God just trying to keep you from having a good time? Well, you can sin and get away with it. There's not going to be any consequences. Look, you've been doing that for some time now, and you've been getting away with it, right? That there isn't going to be consequence for sin, but sure enough, there is consequence for sin. The wages of sin is death. So first, Satan questions the word, then he contradicts the word, and then he replaces the word. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you eat of this, you're going to be like God. This is going to be a good thing. This is going to make you more like God and you're going to know the difference between good and evil. So Satan has a way of taking something that's forbidden because it's bad, forbidden because it's going to destroy us, and make it look good and even put a spin on it that you're going to be more like God through this sinful behavior. I don't know how many times I've heard people describe a sinful relationship that they're in and say that it's brought them closer to God, right? Like you wouldn't imagine the kind of fellowship that I have with this gal while I'm in adultery. She just loves Jesus so much. 
and I love Jesus so much and we go to church and this, this sexual sin that we're in has been the best for our relationship with God. I'm just scratching my head and I'm like, I don't think it works like that, right? You know, I've heard people describe that they're smoking pot and doing Bible studies and it's the best revelation that they've ever had, right? <laughs> I don't know what kind of revelation you're having there, but I don't think it's bringing you closer to the Lord. I don't think it's making you closer to who God is and walking in holiness, but there's an easy deception that falls into our hearts and our lives that sin somehow could lead us closer to the Lord. This spiritual deception has really played into most of the false religions. A lot of the false religions teach that if you follow their system, that you'll be like God or you will be a God. So Satan really plays on that desire inside of Eve to be like God. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So she's looking at this tree that God says, I don't want you to to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And first, the tree was good for food. John tells us that the world system involves the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three are, are listed here. First, we have the lust of the flesh. It was good for food. This is gonna satisfy my flesh. It's gonna make my flesh feel good. And a lot of times, sin is gonna give that false advertisement to our flesh. You need this. You can't live without it. But it was also pleasant to the eyes. Oh, it looks so good. Not only does it taste good, but it looks good. It's pleasing to my eyes. And maybe the most deceptive, a tree desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Oh, this sin is gonna make me wise. This sin is gonna make me respected. I've gotta have this. And so she takes the bait. She took of its fruit and she ate and she disobeyed the Lord. In this rebellion, we see the throwing out of the authority that God had set up. In chapter two and chapter one, God emphasizes that they're under his authority. You're made under my image. That Adam was uh, to be the head. Adam's not leading here. Eve's not following. And ultimately, no one's listening to God, right? Adam's not listening to God. Eve's not listening to God. They're throwing out the order that God has set in place. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. No argument from Adam, She says, hey, I had a healthy snack. You should have it too. Hands the fruit to him and he eats. And the Bible makes it very clear in the New Testament that Eve was deceived, but Adam made a willful choice. And then Adam, as the spiritual leader, is the one that's held responsible. In the book of Romans, we're told that Adam's sin then caused us all to be born with a sinful nature. Now, if you're not sure if we're born with a sinful nature, you probably haven't spent time with a toddler in a while. You can forget that. And as cute and cuddly and adorable as toddlers are, right about 18 months, there's this reality of they're cute little sinners, aren't they? And they look at you and they learn that word so quickly of saying no, right? So we inherited a sinful nature through Adam. So God holds Adam responsible 
because he was the spiritual leader and he chooses to willfully obey. He's not in that place of spiritual deception. And then notice what happens and we see this reality that's taking place of Adam and Eve's sin and it's the second point is, is Adam and Eve's sin is the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So prior to this, they were naked, and it never even occurred to them that this was abnormal. The end of chapter 2, as they enter into marriage, they're, they're naked before each other, and they're totally not, not ashamed. But as sin enters into their understanding, then all of a sudden they're aware of their nakedness, and they need a covering. They need clothes. They look around what's going to be the most adequate form of clothing, and they get fig leaves and sew for themselves some clothes. Can we say uncomfortable? Fig leaves are itchy, and they're prickly, and not an adequate covering. When we sin, we become aware of our sin, we become aware of our nakedness, and we want to cover our sin because we're ashamed. But the covering that we come up with is not adequate, isn't it? It, It's far from being sufficient. In verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. So we have God's redemption, and it's the third point. As we see Adam and Eve sin, God seeks to redeem. God at this point could have not come to have conversation with Adam and Eve, but in his love for them, he seeks them out, even though that they're hiding. And they hear God coming in the cool of the day. It seems to be the pattern that God would come and fellowship with them face to face in the cool of the day. Wouldn't that be wonderful? In the Garden of Eden, the absence of sin, you and your spouse hanging out with the Lord face to face. There's something special as the sun rises, as the sun sets, things calm down, and an opportunity to fellowship with God, and they hear the Father coming, and what do they do? They hide. And this is the reality of sin in our lives. It's first we're ashamed, and then we hide. And we hide primarily from God. We don't want God to know that we've sinned. We don't want to be held accountable before God. So we think that we can hide from God. God sees everything. He knows everything. We can't hide anything from his presence, Psalms 139 tells us. Remember the story of Jonah, the prophet? God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. He says, not on your life. I'm not going to our enemies, the Assyrians. So he goes to Tarsus on a boat. God sends a storm. Jonah knows that this storm is sent to get his attention But instead of getting right with God, he tells these pagan sailors, just throw me overboard. I'm going to keep hiding from God. I'm going to hide at the bottom of the ship. If that doesn't work, I'm just going to hide in the bottom of the ocean. And God's like, you can't hide from me. I'm going to seek you out. And God sends a great fish to swallow him up. That's the Lord. Have you ever had that experience with the Lord? Maybe prior to knowing God, you said, I don't want anything to do with God and tried to hide from him, but yet God continued to pursue you. As a believer, like Jonah, have you ever walked away from the Lord and said, I'm gonna get as far away from God as I possibly can 
I'm going to put myself in the bottom of a boat, the bottom of a sea, and then God keeps sending a great fish to bail you out. And you're like, I don't want a great fish to bail me out. Yet the Lord pursues us. It's his redemption in our lives. Maybe the last place that you thought you'd be tonight would be sitting in church. There's some sin in your life and you're wanting to hide from the presence of God and God's seeking you out. He's coming to have a conversation for the purpose of of restoration. In verse nine, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Where are you? What tone do you hear in that question? Do you hear the tone of an angry cop, an angry school teacher? Where are you? Do you hear the tone of an angry parent? Maybe as you were in trouble growing up, you hear your middle name in the middle of this? Where are you, right? You you knew you were going to get it when your middle name uh, comes out. Do you think God here in his tone is angry? Do you think he's upset? Do you say, I want to get you. You better run for your life. It's a good thing you're hiding, right? I think we have the heart of a broken father saying, where are you? Why would you hide from me? What have you done? I want to be in relationship with you. Some of you have heard me tell this story, but it really connects me to this. When I was in eighth grade, I was 14, it was the end of my eighth grade year, and feeling pretty tough. And I would have to study my spelling words for the Friday spelling test. And I was a terrible speller. I'm st- still a terrible speller. So thankful for Siri. Spell adequate, right? You know, whew, lifesaver. So my mom's like, hey, Eric, you need to study your spelling words. So I look at my mom and I was like, I'll study them when I want to. And I threw my spelling book and then I start walking down the stairs like I'm big bad stud, right? Well, sure enough, I hear dad walking down the stairs after me. And something clicked in my head like, this is, this is my time. Like, I'm gonna take a shot at the title. Like, I'm sick of this and I, I'm just gonna let him have it. And I meant it when I said, I'm gonna study these when I'm ready, Right? So I turned around, and with everything that I could muster, I, just, I punched my dad as hard as I could right, right in the stomach. And I was really thinking in my 14-year-old head, like, I'm, he's just going to buckle and go to the ground, right? <laughs> Apparently, I hadn't looked at the mirror, you know. <laughs> that's part of the 14-year-old delusion that uh, is, is taking place. And I remember just hitting him and, and expecting him to be hurt, and then all of a sudden, it didn't phase him. And the next thing that came over to me was fear. Like, I am going to get it. Like, I, I am, I'm outmatched here. And I remember my dad looked at me, and he got just a small tear in his eye, and it was evident that it wasn't from pain. And he says, why would you hit me? You've never hit me before. So we need to sit down and talk. And I thought that I was, I was going to get just wiped out, you know, that he was going to go ahead and just punch me and punch me back and lay it into me, but his heart was hurt that I hit him. And I know that he was full of the Holy Spirit in that moment, and that broke me more than if he would have hit me back. That broke me more than anything else was the fact that, man, I, I hurt his heart in the midst of my stupidity. And you'd think that there'd be like an immediate breakthrough in my life, and I continued to be a knucklehead, you know? But it was a moment that stuck with me, 
And that's the heart of God. When Adam and Eve sinned and when we sinned, God says, where are you? Where are you? And I think God continues to ask us that question tonight. Where are you? Have you been hiding from the Lord? Is there some sin in our lives where we're thinking, I don't want God to see, and I'm ashamed of this, and I'm holding on to this. And in verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So what does sin do? Sin brings shame, sin brings hiding, and sin brings fear. A very different picture than where they were in chapter 2. Enjoying fellowship with God and enjoying fellowship with one another. And now fear has completely consumed them. And instead of being able to go to God's presence, they're hiding from God's presence in fear. They're doing the exact opposite of what God would want them to do, what God would want us to do. When we sin to be able to run to his presence instead of running away from his presence. In verse 11, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you not eaten from the tree of which I've commanded you that you should not eat? Now, God is asking questions not for information. He already knows. But he's giving opportunity for a confession and repentance. One of the things that's big in God's economy is confession. I had a question that uh, someone asked recently at our newcomer's lunch, is if our church, if we uh, practiced uh, confession— And I said, yes and no, because I knew the background of the question was, do you need to go to a pastor and ask the pastor for forgiveness? And in that sense, by all means, we do not practice confession. Why? Because talking to a pastor does not result in forgiveness of sin. But how do we practice confession? We talk directly to God. We have opportunity to not go to a person, but to go to God directly and to confess our sin. What does it mean to confess our sin? It means to agree with God. It takes humility, it takes brokenness to agree with God and say, God, I sinned. I'm not gonna try to justify this. It was wrong. I know that it's wrong. I know that I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? And as we confess our sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God's asking these questions with the opportunity for confession so that there could be the restoration of the relationship. Now notice what happens. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Adam says, it's her fault. Blame shifting started early. But if you think this through, not only did he say, it's her fault, but he's saying, God, it's your fault because she made me do it and you gave me her. I was asleep. I didn't ask for her. I was all fine by myself. I woke up and I had a rib missing and here she was. (laughs) And now look at the trouble that she got me into. This is far different from the song he was singing just a moment ago. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is amazing, right? This woman is phenomenal. God, thank you so much for for giving her uh, to me. And now it's all her fault. In verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and 
I ate. So the patience of God is he just allows them to go through these excuses and the blame shifting. And what does Eve do? Well, at least in her maturity, she didn't say, well, it's Adam's fault. He wasn't leading me very adequately, right? She says, well, it was Satan's fault. It's this serpent. She dece- he deceived me. He tricked me. And he caused me to do this. But it's not Adam taking responsibility. It's not Eve taking responsibility. It's the blame shifting. Verse 17, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So God now begins to give consequences to the serpent to Adam and Eve for uh, the sin. And to the serpent, the serpent is going to now crawl on its belly, on the dust of the earth all the days of its life, and be cursed more than all the cattle. You think of all of God's creatures, and they've got legs, most of them, right? There's very few creatures that don't have legs. In my mind, I think of the worm and the snake, right? They're on their belly crawling along, and even ants have got legs, and spiders have got legs. It may have been that the serpent prior to this was able to stand more upright, but now has to be upon its belly. Over the weekend, while Kent was here teaching, had the opportunity to to go hunting, and Sunday I'm walking through uh, this field, and it's dry, it's been a dry year, and I look about four feet in front of me, and I was like, oh, it's a snake. (laughs) Not quite what I was hunting for. And it was a rattlesnake, and thankfully it was a really cold Sunday, and so this, the snake was not moving and not even rattling, but I'm like, okay, I'm backing up, I'm out of here, right? And there's something about snakes as they're just crawling on the ground, you don't really expect to see them. It seems like every time I've seen a snake, it's like, whoa, what, what a surprise, what are you doing right there? So part of the curse of the snake is it's going to crawl on its belly. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Part of the curse upon the snake is women don't like snakes, and this is a generalization, but for the most part, women don't care for snakes. There's this anger and this enmity between women and snakes. The end of verse 15 is an important part of God's redemption. It says, between your seed and her seed. So Satan's seed and her seed, the the seed of Eve, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So of the seed of Eve is going to bruise or crush the head of Satan. And then of the seed of Eve, the heel is going to be bruised. So who comes from the seed of Eve? Jesus of the virgin birth of Mary. And his heel was bruised upon the cross. But in Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection, the head of Satan was crushed. This is what's seen in theological terms as the first mention of the gospel in all of scripture. And the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures. So in the moment of Satan's attack and Adam and Eve's sin, you have God saying, all is not lost. I'm gonna give my son to crush the head of Satan and to bring this ultimate victory that's now needed because of sin. And that's amazing to me. 
that God in his love would not leave us to our own devices and our sin, but send his son to die for us. In verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So ladies, you've got a lot to thank Eve for. When you see her in in heaven, you can be like, man, just thank you so much. You blessed me with so many things. And the first is that there's sorrow and there's pain in childbirth. Prior to that, apparently childbirth wasn't painful. And then just this crazy curse that you would desire your husband. You're like, man, why do I care so much for my husband? It's part of the curse. You can just thank Eve for that. But then he's going to rule uh, over you. Now, God had already set up the order prior to the fall, and we saw that in uh, chapter 2. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 7, because we see the same word desire that's used in Genesis 4, verse 7. Speaking of Cain and Abel, and we'll look at this next week. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And so sin creeping at the door, sin's desire is for you, and, and that in that desire is, is to rule over Cain. Sin wants to rule over Cain. And so there's some that see this as part of the curse of what it's really saying is that Eve's going to have a desire to control her husband. But then the leadership is given over to Adam. David Guzik puts it this way. The same word for desire is used in Genesis 4-7 of the desire of sin to master over Cain. Because of the curse, Eve would have to fight a desire to master her husband a desire that works against God's ordained order for uh, the home. And so this is the consequence that's put upon Eve. And then to Adam, verse 17, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I've commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Would have been nice to no work prior to the fall. Once the fall took place, one of the consequences that's given to Adam is you're going to have thorns, you're going to have thistles, you're going to have to work so hard to just get food to grow. And you're going to sweat. And there's going to be sweat involved with work until you go home to be with the Lord. Sometimes I think that we're trying to engineer a way out of the fall and the consequences of the fall. Like maybe if I just do all these things right, there won't be toil in my life. Hey church, I just got to let you know, Ecclesiastes emphasizes this as well. Under the sun, there's going to be toil. Under the sun, there's going to be work. We can anticipate there being hard work until we go home to be with the Lord. Do we see Jesus at all in verse 18 and 19? I think we do. Because what's the consequence of sin? Thorns and thistles. When Jesus was mocked in his trial, what did, what did they do? They took the crown of thorns and they placed it upon his head. Jesus taking the curse for us so that we could be forgiven. 
so that we could have eternal life, so that we wouldn't live under the curse for all of eternity. Adam is promised to have sweat from his face, and Jesus, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizes to the point where he sweats blood. Jesus in his redemption frees us from the curse. Continuing it in verse 19, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and for dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is really interesting. I think that this is worth underlining. You're saying, well, why is this the big deal that Adam now starts calling his wife Eve? Because last week we saw her receive the name Isha in the Hebrew, which is woman or out of man. But now this is a different name. It's Eve, and it means the mother of all living things. Adam, in the midst of sin, has faith to believe that God is going to continue to be with them and says, you're going to be the mother of all living things. This isn't the end of the story. And for him to have that faith in God shows the kind of fellowship that he had with God. And I want to encourage you, you may feel like all is lost because of sin in your life. I mean, sin can be so overwhelming and discouraging and we're living in guilt and shame and fear is to lift our eyes to the cross and hold on in faith to who Jesus is and go, God is going to bring redemption. God is going to bring life where there's death. That's what God does when there's repentance. When there's no repentance, we're continuing down that road of sin. But when there's repentance and we choose to humble ourselves and to cry out to the Lord for his grace and his mercy, God loves to rebuild. God loves uh, to restore. He loves to bring that life out of, of death. Verse 21 is hugely significant as well. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. In order for there to be tunics, an animal had to die. So God kills an animal to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. You can picture God looking at Adam and Eve and going, man, those fig leaves are just sorry. Those, those fig leaves are painful, right? I can't, I can't leave you in this inadequate state. So God then kills an animal, this innocent animal, and death enters in the picture for the first time. It must be what Paul's thinking about in Romans 6.23 when he says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin brings about death. And ultimately, this points to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where God would write to Moses and say, when there's sin amongst the people of God, these animals have to be killed. But ultimately, those animal sacrifices could only cover sin. God provides a physical covering here those animals were slain to provide a spiritual covering for, for their sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But every time an animal was killed in the Old Testament for sin, it was pointing to Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus and points to the Messiah, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who is the ultimate covering that removes our sin from us and robes us in Christ's righteousness. So the father here provides the covering for Adam and Eve, but ultimately the covering would be in his son, God's redemption, to where Jesus would pay the price so that our sin could be removed and that we could be robed in Christ's righteousness. 
Church, the main point of this chapter is not Satan and not Adam and Eve, though they are key characters. The main point in this chapter is God's redemption. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin, and we see the grave consequences from it. God knew that Satan would attack, but it was also in the heart of God, even before the creation of the world, that God would send his son to pay the price for sin that all is not lost in the reality of sin. Aren't you so thankful for the gospel? Aren't you so thankful for God's redemption? Aren't you so thankful that God doesn't allow us to hide in our sin and he seeks us out and he says, look, I've got a covering for you. Are you walking around in the covering of Jesus? I hope so. Instead of walking around in the guilt and condemnation of sin is to say, I know that I'm forgiven. I know that my sin is real, but I know that my Savior is greater still. And because of my faith in Jesus, I'm able to walk in the righteousness of Christ. In verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. In Adam and Eve coming to this knowledge of evil, it's not a good thing. They've lost their innocence. That's always kind of a sad day in the life of our children when they lose some innocence. We know it's part of the process of them entering into the adult world, but but your heart's grieved and you're you're saddened. You're like, oh, there's there's an aspect of their innocence that they've lost. I always love to see my kids play and just them enjoy their youthful childhood innocence, right? Because you know it's such a small period of time in their life. Like I get my bike out and ride down the hill, but I don't have near as much fun as when my young kids get their bike and ride down the hill, right? Because it's just the best thing ever. And the father here is saying they've become like us in that they know good and evil, but they've lost the, the innocence. And we can't leave them in this sinful state eating of the tree of life. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim, the angel, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's mercy. So that Adam and Eve don't live in an eternal sinful state. But then also in God's plan of redemption, because of the crucifixion of Christ, We're welcomed to the tree of life in a glorified state because what Christ has done for us. This had to be a long walk for Adam and Eve. Can you imagine? Leaving the Garden of Eden, leaving this close fellowship uh, with God, but yet holding on to this promise of redemption, this promise that through the seed of Mary that the head of Satan would be crushed. We learn so much from this chapter. We should learn from Satan's attack. Paul writes and he tells us, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Satan doesn't have new tricks because his old ones are so effective. He plays the same cards over and over again. He's going to question the word of God. He's going to contradict the word of God. He's going to replace the word of God. He's going to play on the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and and the pride of life. Know the word, memorize the word, cry out to Jesus. 
Jesus is the way that's providing the escape. But if your mind starts to go, man, has God really said? Is this, is this really true, what the Lord has said? Always hold on to the word of God. We see the reality of sin. What happens when we take the bait? We blame shift. We hide. We live in shame. We live in condemnation. Church, God can't do the work of restoration that he desires if we're going to play the victim and we're going to blame shift. If my sin is somebody else's fault until I take ownership, I'm not going to experience restoration with God and forgiveness from sin the way the Lord would intend. And maybe you find yourself sitting here tonight and blaming it on someone else, blaming it on a circumstance, blaming it on a person, blaming it on the devil. That, that didn't fly for God. He says, no, you chose this. Adam and Eve, this was a decision that you, you have made. And so here's the consequence for it. But when we take ownership of our sin, when we confess our sin to God, and we say, Lord, I'm the one who's done this. Would you please forgive me? And would you wash me and cleanse me? And would you, you change me? That's sweet music to God's ears, amen? So we learn a lot about, about sin, but ultimately we learn about God's redemption. The prophecy of the gospel. God providing a covering for us. So everything is changed, but all is not lost. But all is not lost. If you're wrestling with sin tonight, all is not lost. If you have never received Christ as your Savior, and you read the scripture tonight, and you go, man, I've done exactly what Adam and Eve have done, is look to the cross, that Jesus died for your sins. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And to turn from our sin and say, Jesus, save me. Be the Lord of my life. Maybe as a believer, you find yourself in a place that you ought not to be. And it took courage just to be here at church tonight. Just get right with the Lord. Get right with the Lord. Maybe there's someone that you love and that you care for greatly, and they're wrestling with sin or even defeated by sin this evening. And you just feel like, man, all is lost. All is lost. Sin is one. There's nothing left but just consequences, guilt, and shame. There's never going to be victory. There's never going to be change. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is there's forgiveness for you. The message of the cross is there's redemption. Christ has, has paid the price. The message is one of hope towards others to go, man, they're wrestling with sin, but God is greater. And God loves to seek out those that are in a place of compromise to bring them back to that place of, of restoration. And God is the one speaking. He's the one speaking and he's whispering and it sounds like a shout and he's saying, where are you? Where are you? I want to spend time with you. That's the whole point of the Bible. As good as it is to know Satan's attacks and the reality of our own sin, the bigger thing to see is we've got a God who created us who wants to be in relationship with us and he's saying, look, I've paid the price for your sin. You don't have to hide it any longer. You don't have to live in shame. Maybe we've been wearing fig leaves. 
How ridiculous, right? God's saying, you know what? You don't have to hide. You don't have to go around pretending and putting on this mask and trying to fool the church that you don't ever sin and you've got your act together. Go ahead, get, take the fig leaves off and receive the provision that Christ has provided. And that's what we celebrate in communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The cup represents the new covenant, the blood. That Jesus' blood brings us into relationship with God, where we're in relationship with him based upon the blood of Jesus. That his broken body is represented in the bread. That he was broken for us to be made whole. Don't misunderstand me. We don't minimize sin. Sin costs Jesus his life. The damage of sin is very clear. Hopefully this brings us to a place where we're even broken over sin. We're poor in spirit in a greater way. And then it brings us to awe of the gospel, that God would love me this much, that God would pursue me in this sinful state and provide forgiveness for me. Church, we have good news. We've got the greatest news of all time that we first receive and believe and live in and then be able to share with others. The world is lost in sin. It sounds like to me they're ripe for good news, aren't they? They're ripe for the provision that can only be found in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you pursue us. We hear your heart in that question, where are you? And God, we see our own sin and so many times we try to hide it. We try to hide it from you, try to hide it from ourselves and others. But God, it's so exhausting to be hiding. It's so exhausting to live in shame. And Lord, we don't want to be in that place any longer. Even as believers, we can be in that place. But we want to be in a place of openness with you. We know that you do work in our lives when we confess our sin to you. We thank you that we don't have to go to a person, we don't have to go to a man or a woman, that we have direct access to you. But as we take communion tonight, may we be broken before you. Not broken over the sin of others or frustrated over the sin of others but broken in our own hearts and lives before you but then also may we experience your forgiveness and your restoration and your rebuilding so would you really bless this time of communion we thank you and praise you in jesus name amen